The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 22. Um, I just It's the highlight of my year and uh, to hear what God has done in the lives of other people, and so it's going to be a bit of a challenge to move on. But um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 22. We are going to be uh, Matthew 22, verse 15 to 46, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to read this for us, and then um, we will uh, pray, and then ask for God's help, and look at this together. So this is just after Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. This is his uh, introductory campaign, so to speak, and we'll pick up in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they set their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, and the first married and died, having no offspring, leaving it off uh, with no offspring, and left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, and are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, having, have you not read what, it, what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Is he not God of the dead, but of the living? And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asking him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit called him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he the son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day that anyone dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this moment in Jesus' life, and these questions that come to him, I pray 
that you would give us clarity to see his authority and to treasure him. I pray you would help us by your spirit to understand your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we were looking at how Jesus came into Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem and his his coming in is highly orchestrated. When Jesus comes in, we were looking at it last week, he orchestrates kind of like a whole campaign, right, where uh, a politician has everything kind of set up and the pre, you know, the preview speakers speak and they warm up the crowd and then the politician comes out and it's, this is Jesus' introduction to Jerusalem to tell people who he is and what he's like and what he's about. And what we saw last week is that Jesus comes as a, as a powerful king for broken people. We saw that last week. He comes in, a humble king on a donkey, and starts to show people what it's like, who he really is as the king. What is he about? This week, as, we're, as we just read, what happens next is Jesus gets into all these arguments with um, the major religious teachers at the time. They were all going after Jesus. They saw that uh, their game was up. And that if they don't take down Jesus, that their entire enterprise is going down in shambles. And so they go after Jesus, and they're throwing the hardest punches that they can. They're coming with the biggest arguments that they've got, and Jesus is not even, like, flabbergasted at all. He walks right through it, and he shows clearly that he's in charge and he's the authority. He does that through these three arguments, and then he asks this final question at the end. I don't know if you picked up on this, but this is it's kind of like a word battle. You ever see like uh, Lord of the Rings where uh, Gandalf and uh, Saruman are going after each other, and they got like this word battle going on? Uh, I, I know it's a nerdy reference. I'm sorry. But uh, they're going after each other. So you, you got that at the beginning. Verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And then this, the section ends, right, after Jesus has 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 shown them who he is by his words, and no one was able to answer him a word. For Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions, right? They go in to try to entangle him, and Jesus is so good at his word judo that he just takes him down, right? And along the way, right, verse 22, when they heard it, when, they answered his, when he answered them, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And then verse 33, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So what Jesus is saying is revealing who he is in this moment. And we are seeing in this passage, if you were to say, what's the main point? Jesus is the true authority we can trust, right? All that's going on, all the arguments, what happens is Jesus engages each of them because they, they reveal something about our hearts and how we engage the world. And in each one, Jesus is exposing the confusion. He's exposing the, uh, the mumbled thinking. And he is speaking clearly. He's the authority that we can trust because what happens is, when we engage with a lot of confusing things, well, you said this, but this happened, or you said this, and that doesn't line up with that, we can tend to kind of not trust authority. And Jesus comes in and says, no, you can trust me. I'm clear about who I am, and he's clear about being God's son and referring to God's word and showing us what it means. But he's an authority we can trust, and I might say, the true authority we can trust and love. So how does Jesus bring clarity? That's what we're going to be looking at. How does Jesus bring clarity to our lives? And we're going to be looking at it in four main, four main sections, just to break down the passage. And uh, just to start things off, we're going to, we're going to touch the, t- the issue that nobody ever wants to touch at church. He clarifies our politics, right? We don't want to talk about politics, or maybe you come from a church background that you talk about too much politics. We don't talk about it that much here, but we're going to do it this morning. How does Jesus clarify for us with his authority? I pick up in verse 15, he clarifies our politics. 
right? So here's a situation, right? We've already read it, so I'm just going to summarize it for us, right? Here are the Pharisees, and they are like, okay, here's how we can trap Jesus. We are trying to trap Jesus in this moment by giving him a question that could get him killed by the government, right? Because here's, they are, at the, at the time, the Jewish people were under the rule of the Roman, of the Roman government, and so if you said anything where you were like, uh, death to Caesar, it was like, well, death to you, you know? Like, it was a pretty easy equation, Right? And, but the arrangement that they had with the um, Roman government was they had to pay taxes on certain things that they did. And they had a temple tax. And so the way they paid their temple tax is that they had a coin from the Roman government that they would tax people because well, uh, it wasn't like our day where you can kind of get it like automatically deducted from your paycheck. Like they actually like, whenever they went to their capital, they paid their taxes and that was their taxes for the year. So... Jewish people come to the temple once a year. This is the Passover. This is the big festival. This is the one time a year where everybody comes together. They're going to pay their tax. And on their coin that they use for their tax money, can we throw this picture up? This is a picture of the silver. It's called a denarius. Now, I know this is all like Latin gibberish to most people. Does anybody read Latin in here? Yeah, sorry. Super nerds in here. Any super nerds in here who speak Latin? No. So here, I only know this because of the books. I don't speak Latin either. But on the coin, right, so on the coin, it says Tiberius Caesar Divi Augustus Finus. So here we go. This side right here, Tiberius Augustus Divi Augustus What that means is that this, whoa, whoa, put it back, put it back. There we go. Right here, we have the picture of Tiberius, the, the king or the Caesar at the time. And what that means is that it is, it is saying he is the son of God. They considered the Caesar at the time a god. And so he would, here we have on this coin, right, here is Tiberius Augustus, the son of God. And then on the other side, here he is sitting in a throne, and it says uh, Pontifex Maximus, which means he's the high priest. So if you're picking up what we're putting down right now is that the coin that they used to pay their temple tax was, uh, in the Jewish eyes, an idolatrous coin saying that the government's king is the son of God and he's the high priest. And here I am to pay taxes to go in to worship God with a coin that honors a false God, right? So you can kind of pick up on the tension. And so they're saying, okay, Jesus, should we use this idolatrous coin to pay to get in to the temple? So what does Jesus say, right? Are you feeling the tension there? And actually, the, the question comes from people who started a revolt in 6 AD, so about 30 years before this moment, and that revolt will simmer under the, under the under unseen, and then actually 30 years after Jesus rises from the dead, it'll cause the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is no joke question, right? This is like Civil War, World War type level questions. It seems kind of like, well, it's just like a dollar bill. Like, what's the big deal? Jesus picks up on the tension, and what does he say? Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? He is throwing no punches. Show me the coin of the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Right? This has become actually a pretty famous moment for Jesus and his render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God. Uh, this tends to get used as a kind of a blanket covering for whatever somebody's political persuasion is. But here's what Jesus is saying. It is possible to live at peace with a hostile government and be honorable and live true for God, right? It is possible 
to give, honor the authority of the government, and give authority to God. But the point that Jesus is drawing out, so you notice that render to, the, to God the things that are God's. What is Jesus talking about there? In the previous, chapter, the previous part of this chapter that we looked at last week, what Jesus was drawing at is that our lives are intended to produce fruit for God, to honor God with our lives, to produce uh, obedience to God and loving other people and loving our neighbors and loving the people around us and being a part of God's work for justice and mercy in our lives and being honorable in our relationships with our spouse and our neighbors, right? Reflecting the image of God in our neighborhoods and where we live. That's what Jesus is drawing their attention to. They're, they're getting all kind of in a huff about, okay, um, do we give this coin that has an idol on it as tax to get into worship the true God? And Jesus says, you know what? Let's reset the priorities here. Your priority in life of your politics, let's put God at the top, and are you honoring God with your life to show him and reflect him in your life? And then, yes, we can, we can pay taxes to a government that may not honor or even compete with God, but that doesn't mean that you're aligned with that government. He is helping us have a posture in our life that primarily focuses on fruit for God, and even in political engagement. Now, this is, a, this is hard for us to get as Americans because kind of like hardwired into the American ethos and the way Americans think is an us-versus-them dynamic, right? Which is similar to what they're experiencing then. There's, there's an us-versus-them, and Jesus is kind of saying us-beside, us-beside them, right? Just to show this, I, I, I realized this recently. If you go back in American history, actually the way in which Europeans got to America, we all talk about the pilgrims that came over on the Mayflower. We're in New England. We know this like this is like a part of our, our family heritage, right? The original pilgrims, you know who they were? They, were? they were a religious persecuted group in England. And they were like, you know what? All these Catholics are getting down on us. We don't like being persecuted by the Catholics. And so what they decided was, you know what? Those guys over in uh, Holland... And Dutchland, like they've got it going on. They've got a, they're a Christian free society. Let's go hang out with them. And so they're like, we don't want to be a part of all this hostility. We're going to go hang out with the Dutchies, right? <laughs> they go hang out with the Dutchies for a while. They're there for about, you know, 20, 30 years. And then they realize, oh, if we're Christians alongside these Dutch Christians, uh, our kids start becoming Dutch. And we don't want our kids to become Dutch. <laughs> We'd rather face persecution than have our kids become Dutch. And so they move back to England, where they are then there for a few years, and then they hear, okay, we're still under persecution in England. And they're like, you know what? We've heard about this new land. I would rather face death on a boat than keep being persecuted. <laughs> and so that's how they ended up coming over to America. That was the group. So you, you see in the track record there is we do not, it's us versus them, right? They are against us. There is a hostility. And then that builds up in American evangelicalism where we have, I mean, you have all the, today this culture war stuff in our politics and us versus them. We've got to take the stake. We've got to win the political argument. That us versus them dynamic is hardwired into American evangelicalism, right? That's why it's hard for us. It, when we kind of explain the story here, you realize, oh, this is very familiar. This is familiar territory. And what Jesus says to us, right, live peaceably with your neighbor and honor God, and produce the fruit of God first, right? That's it. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, right? Be a good citizen. Be engaged. But the focus and primary focus of your life in terms of your politics, 
right? And the, I think the reason Jesus calls us out is because as much as we want to like remove politics and religion, politics really engages the nitty gritty of our lives, right? How we pay taxes, zoning of our house, right? How our water bill gets handled, <laughs> all this other stuff, right? That's the politics of our life. And Jesus says, you know what? Render to God the things that are God's. And the way we engage in our lives and our politics, I am so concerned for this today that we get so amped up about one political party or another, one political idea or another, that we forget that our primary calling is and amidst those political engagements, we are called to produce the fruit of God, right? And what is the fruit of God, right? One summary that Paul, the Apostle Paul throws up for us, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no, could you imagine if we were a church that was known for being in the political realm, full of love and joy, right? What does is, what is politics ever do? Have you ever, have you ever followed political news for like 48 hours? Like it sucks the joy out of your life, doesn't it? <laughs> what if we were, had a priority of God to produce joy in our life and we engaged in free and caring love for our neighbors and joy amidst what God was doing, at peace with others, patient, right? That's what I don't see a lot happens in our political spectrum today. A lot of patience, <laughs> kindness, goodness. Could you imagine? This is what Jesus is aiming at. Produce these fruits because my authority over this world, America will be a footnote in the, in the encyclopedia of, of history. The fruit that you produce in your life will last for eternity if it is for Jesus. So keep that in perspective, right? And I'll just say this. One of the things I love about our church is that we have people who are all across the political spectrum who are a part of this church, and that is fantastic, right? I do not ever want us to become a, a single-issue church or a single political party church. We'll be a church filled with people who are across the spectrum, and we'll love each other among it. So we're going we're gonna to pick up where Jesus uh, is having this conversation, right? Verse 22, and they heard it and they marveled and they left him and went away, right? So Jesus answers this in a way where they're like, it's a grenade, we weren't expecting this, uh, next issue. Let's see if we can get Jesus again. So the Sadducees come into play here where Jesus clarifies our supernatural world. So the Sadducees, who are them? This is, who, are they, who are these guys, right? If you were at the time, you would have obviously known kind of like you know the difference between Republicans and Democrats, Jesus would have been, it would have been obvious that the Sadducees were effectively kind of like the religious elites at the time. They were the lawyers. Um, and the way they viewed the Bible is they basically said the Torah or the Old Testament, so the first five books of the Bible, that's God's word. Everything else is kind of like sub-commentary. We really just care about the Torah, and that's all we care about. And because of that, they had some, they had some religious beliefs where they, for example, it says, verse 23, and the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. A part of their their perspective was, look, we believe in the Old Testament, but we primarily believe in the Torah, and the word resurrection is never mentioned in the Torah. And so they're coming to Jesus, and they're trying to trick him again, because what they're trying to do is do this religious power move where they show, look, we, they were the minority opinion at the time. The Pharisees who believed in the resurrection and all that other stuff were the kind of the, they were the popular opinion at the time. They were trying to show kind of like a national TV, look how dumb these guys are, right? Like there's no resurrection in the in books of Moses. Jesus acknowledges it. They're going to, all these other people, and then what would that do? Religious revolt. They get the power, blah, blah, blah. So this is, there's more on the line than just merely like a religious kind of like a theology classroom question. Right? So they come and have this example, 
And that what they bring out is this example of um, what's called uh, Leverite marriage. So basically the principle is in the Old Testament, if the oldest son gets married to a woman and she, they don't have any sons, then his next youngest brother is supposed to marry her. Now that sounds really gross and weird to us. But what was happening at the time was basically the oldest son inherited all of his father's inheritance. Everything that his father owned went to the oldest son. Now if he got married to a woman, that meant that their, their children received all of that estate and all, those, all the goods, right? And if she doesn't have a son uh, and she gets married to somebody else and they have a son, all that stuff gets gravitational. It gets pulled over to her family. So it was really, in a, in a sense, trying to preserve, like, this is our family stuff, right? This is a family farm. This is the family business. We want to make sure it stays in the family. So that's what was going on. And so they asked this for question. And they're like, okay, well, uh, heaven's going to basically be a nicer version, right? Uh, 2.0 version of life. <laughs> and so uh, whose wife is she going to be? So Jesus picks up on this whole situation, right? And he says, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And what Jesus does is he draws their attention to the fact that um, in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.3, where it says, uh, love the Lord your God, uh, sorry, that's the next section, right? Jesus draws their attention to Deuteronomy 6.3, where he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, look, you guys are, first of all, you're all wrong because you're denying the resurrection. The resurrection is real, not because God likes to do magic tricks, but because God is a living, eternal, loving God. And he does not have dead corpses for his family. He will have a living, vibrant family that will live with him forever, that will be in his presence forever, that will enjoy his eternal life and joy forever. So all these people who die, they died, but they will rise again because God will have a living eternal family, which is a part of what God brings us into in Jesus, right? So that's, he just kind of sweeps that one out of the way. And then he also says, right, look, in heaven, there will be neither, neither marriage uh, because people will be like angels in heaven. Now, we'll talk about this. We're going to probably preach through 1 Corinthians next. But, uh, and so we'll talk about sex and marriage there. But basically what's going on here is Jesus saying, look, uh, Sex and marriage is for this life now, and then God will be in eternal relationship with us in a way of joy and pleasure that we could never imagine in heaven forever, right? So that's where Jesus, we're just going to kind of leave that there. We talk about politics. We can't talk about too many controversial things this morning. (laughs) But what Jesus is drawing their attention to is that, I don't know, do you guys know the term a deist? Somebody who thinks that God set up the world and kind of set up the laws and steps back and lets it run, right? That's what a deist is. And the Sadducees were basically deists. What they were saying was, God set up the world, he put the laws in motion, and then he kind of stepped back. Because, um, look, marriage is like this here. If there is a resurrection, it's going to be like that there. Uh, if a mechanic, you know, you follow the law here, it's going to have this effect there. They did not like any supernatural explanation of the world because they did not understand that the God of the Bible is at face value, immediately face-to-face with every person in the world. They did not like the reality that God is intimate with his creation. That's what we mean by supernatural. It's the life of God among his world, that God present among his people, God present among his creation, God near who his people are. So we often have this temptation to become 
either functional deist or functional atheist in our lives. This idea that, well, it's like this today, it's going to be like that tomorrow, it's a mechanical world, and it's just going to grind out the world, and my life's going to be gone, and life is joyless now, it'll be joyless tomorrow. Whatever's like this today will be like that tomorrow. This functional reality, and, and we do this in weird ways, right, where it's, um, I don't, at a functional level, when I often go to my idols and addictions, what I am saying is, I have to manage my life because God doesn't care. I have to manage my life because God isn't near. I have to manage my life because God doesn't want to give me the power to overcome this. That's, that's functioning. Yes, I'm at an intellectual level. I'm a Christian. I believe that God exists and he cares about me and loves me. But at a functional level, when I live out my life, tomorrow when I wake up, I have to manage my power. I have to manage my energy. I have to manage things because, well, God's up there and I'm down here and there's, there's a barrier between us that he doesn't care. We become like the Sadducees in many ways, but we have this functional reality of a functional deism in our lives. And Jesus hits that one like a sucker punch right in the face. And he says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Because what happens at the end of this week? We're looking at this. This is the, the, week of the, last, uh, the last week of Jesus' life before his resurrection. He dies, and then what happens? A miracle of miracles that we're going to celebrate in baptism, right? He rises from the dead. Like, for real, a dead body with no breathing lungs, no flowing blood in its veins, no electricity going on in his brain. It goes off, and electricity, blood starts pumping, life starts going into this body that was dead for three days. And Jesus, by the power of God, rises from the dead to destroy the power of death over all of his people. And so when he says, you don't know the power of God, He's talking both about the Old Testament God, uh, God in the Old Testament, where, look, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were alive because of, in front of me because I'm a living God. But the power of God has a physical reality in our life. And so that's why Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. This is what he gives to us as a part of his kingdom. The power of the resurrected Christ living among his people and giving us the power to follow him. This is what Paul says. Can we throw up Ephesians here? Paul says this basically in Ephesians 1. He was praying this for the church. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit to have the eyes of your heart enlightened to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Did you pick up on that word? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. This reversal of death power, this power that can put breath into the lungs of a dead man, is the very power that God functionally works in our lives so that we live and move and have strength and energy and power because of the Spirit living in us, because of the resurrected Christ. So, the addictions and idols and struggles that we face today and tomorrow are we going to live in the supernatural power of God to find our power and strength in him? Or are we going to live like functional atheists and say we've got to manage this on our own? This is the authority that Jesus brings. He says, I've got the power for you. I've got you. We don't have to manage ourselves. This is the true authority that we can trust over the supernatural part of the world. We're going to pick up then in verse 34. He clarifies not only our politics, he 
He clarifies our supernatural world. We'll pick up in verse 34. He clarifies our purpose. All right, this is the meaning of life question, right? If you ever, anybody, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, what's the meaning of life? 42, right? I mean, it's, it is a great grand question. So Jesus comes in, and so basically, you kind of have like, um, you have like the knockout punch going on, right? This is, one guy's come up, we got this knockout question for Jesus, and he judos that question out of the way, right? You got the second question coming up, Jesus judos that question out of the way, because Jesus is a black belt of truth. Um, got this third one that comes up, and this is the Pharisees, they come up and they're like, okay, so here's the big question, right? We, you've, you've addressed how do we engage with, poly, with, with uh, false governments who have a power over us. Um, you've dealt with these guys who have a false understanding of the Old Testament. Okay, Jesus, here's a final essay question. What's the most important commandment of the Old Testament? So for the Pharisees at the time, they would have seen that there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 613 commandments of what God tells people to do. Everything from the top 10 in the 10 commandments, right? Uh, no idols, you know, no adultery, no murder, those type of things, down to uh, you know, how you cook your food and purity laws of how you keep your house clean. 613 commandments. And what was happening amongst the Pharisees at the time is all of these questions were basically kind of like, what's your priority in life? What's your purpose? Whichever one you picked was kind of like, this is like my mission statement for life. You know, I really care about keeping my house clean. I've got this, the feng shui of my house all in order. And that's more important than all these other things that you guys emphasize. Or I've got my marriage all in order, right? <laughs> Obedience to the sixth commandment, right? Did I get that one right? Yeah. Jamie says I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Obedience to those commandments. That if I, I got my marriage, and this is the most important one. What's the most important commandment really revealed the priority of how one understood who God was and how he wanted his people to live? And as Jesus wasn't actually the first one to say this, but he was the authoritative one to say. Verse 20, 37. Here's the answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then Jesus goes above and beyond. And the, and the, second, and the, the great commandment and the first commandment I'm sorry. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? He's pulling these from the Old Testament. He's pulling these out and saying, this is our purpose. This is why God created us, to love God and to love our neighbors. Jesus is drawing out, what am I, the question, what am I here for? Right? Am, I here, uh, am I here for moral duty, to be a good person and to show other people, here's what it's like to be good. I got it. I can, get, I can do all the self-help books. I can read all the, the blog articles. I can watch the YouTube videos. I can get my life in order. I'm a good person. It's my duty. Is that the purpose of life? Right? Or intellectual work. I, I'm going to keep getting more, more education, more uh, learning more, growing in my knowledge, getting more degrees. Is that what I'm here for? I'm going to find more pleasure and more pleasures in different areas in different ways and in different times. Is that what I'm here for? Jesus answers all those and says, those are, those are fine. But they orbit around our purpose, to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves. Which means that first thing is that religion, life with God and knowing Jesus, is a heart reality. We are, we are desire creatures. That's when he says love. We are creatures that are made, yes, we are thinking creatures, but we are, as a church, oriented to shape our thoughts, or to use our thoughts to shape our desires. We're constantly needing to reorient how we think about things. 
and feel primarily about, th about things. But this should be encouraging for us because as, as broken and failure-driven peop failure people, <laughs> people who can't keep our lives together, the first thing that God goes after is not get your life together, prove it, and then you'll make it. You know, fake it, and then you'll get it. He says, I want your heart to be enraptured with me, with who I am, with my beauty and my glory. I want you to love me with all of who you are. I want you to enjoy all of who I am with everything that you are. That's the orientation of God towards us. But Jesus doesn't leave it there because that can leave us with this personal religion that doesn't ever influence other people and it's just me and Jesus. See you guys. He attaches to that as though to say, if you know and enjoy God for who he is, you will love and enjoy other people. They go together. And they are not love other people so you can share the gospel with them. They are love other people so that you can enjoy, encourage, and walk beside them. Be a neighbor to them. <laughs> All the parables that Jesus uses through his ministry are parables about loving other people at the expense of your own interests. Right? That Jesus' orientation is love other people because God has loved you. This is actually where all the one and others from the New Testament come from. Actually, interesting thing about the New Testament, speaking of commandments, is that there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. There's close to 1,000 in the New Testament. So it's not like the command goes away. It actually gets amplified because of who Jesus is. But our purpose is to love God and to love our neighbors, which is how we've structured our church. As a church, we, have, we worship together now, where we enjoy and sing about who God is now. And we serve each other here, right? We have children's ministry people who are serving their brains out to love other people by caring for our kids, right? We have set up and tear down. We have worship team. We have people who are doing hospitality. They're loving us by doing these things to help us be able to enjoy God's presence among us now. And by the way, as a church plant, uh, we just do a lot of serving. And I'm really sorry about it. But it really is to serve and love each other. But we also meet in missional communities, because we want to walk beside each other. If Sunday morning leans towards loving God, missional communities lean towards loving our neighbors ourselves. This is where we functionally live out these commands of Jesus, where Jesus says to love your neighbor. And so we, we want to say, who's our neighbor and how do I do it? <laughs> missional communities is how we've structured our life together to do this. They aren't, they aren't required, but if you're not in one, I want to know how you are loving specifically the people of the church you have committed to love. How are you committed to loving them? How are you committed in a functional way, in a sacrifice of time way, in a obedience to this command way to love your neighbor? The missional communities are the easiest way to do that. It's set up. Show up, put some food in your face, talk to people, tell them about what God's doing in your life. But this is how we do this together. We, we love God and we worship him. And then we love our neighbors as we walk beside each other. That's how we've structured this. So if you're not in a part of missional community, I want to have a conversation about how we can help you be, be obeying this command to love your neighbors yourself. But if you want to find the easiest way to do that, go to a missional community where we walk out this reality. Love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, I know that missional communities are not easy. Small groups are not easy because people are not easy. But let me just tell you, Jesus had the worst missional community ever. <laughs> Jesus had the worst church ever. 
Spirit. These were a bunch of boneheads who were like, yeah, 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 Jesus, you're the best. Go get them, man. Go destroy those Pharisees and those Sadducees. And oh, who are these armies? I'm out of here, Jesus. They, are go- they leave Jesus behind. They-, they abandon him in his most desperate hour. They abandon Jesus because Jesus didn't come just to merely set us a moral example of what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. He came to put his body and blood on the line. And he lived out, love your neighbor as yourself to the nth degree by giving his life for the worst people ever, right? <laughs> These are people who abandoned him, who forsaked him, like you and me, who rejected Jesus and like a closed fist, hard-hearted heart would never submit and bow to Jesus. But he comes to love God and to love us by giving his life to save us from our closed-hearted self-obsessed, inward-focused lives, he dies in our place for all the ways that we've offended God and each other. He had the worst missional community ever. And you know the people he goes to after he rises from the dead? To those boneheaded missional community people that he loves and cares about that he died to save. So if you want to know how does the gospel change how I view my life in the church, Jesus dies so that all the offenses that we have against each other, all the weaknesses and failures that we experience from each other are pinned on him. And then his power, because he loved those, acts, those realities in our lives and died for them, the power to love each other comes from the same Savior who died for those things, to care for each other. Jesus becomes the center, the true authority we can trust in our politics, in our supernatural world, in our purpose. And then we'll end with this. This is maybe one of the more famous passages in the book of Matthew. Now when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So now the tables are turned. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He said to them, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If he then calls him Lord, how is he his son? This is a bombshell of a question. Because the Pharisees answered correct, right? They knew the Old Testament. They're like, God is going to send a Messiah. He's going to be our savior. He's going to destroy all these Roman people. He's going to get all these oppressive guys out of our way. And we're going to be back on top because our king's the king. (laughs) And he's the son of David. Some of that was true. He was going to be the son of David. He's going to deal with those things that oppress us and destroy us. But Jesus looks to the words of David, that he, was, he spoke by the Spirit, which is just a comment. Jesus viewed the entire Old Testament as given by the Holy Spirit. So that's a word of God. Jesus looks at it and says, okay, well, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Okay, how does that one work out? David's going to have a son, but he's also going to be his Lord. Jesus is pointing his finger at the most crucial universe-shaking, life-transforming reality that the Son of God, who is eternal God, took on feeble, broken human flesh and was fully God and fully man at the same time. And if you can get your brain around that, you are like the smartest person in history. Because that is not, does not make sense. But that's what Jesus says about himself. He says, yeah, you're right. I'm the... I, the, king, the son of David is going to be the king, but he's also going to be the son of somebody else, right? 
this is not like a three God thing. This is a one God thing with, with three persons and the son of God, the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh. This is what the book of Matthew starts out with, right? Starts out with his human lineage and his divine lineage. He is the son of God. And this is why this is important for his authority. One of the church fathers, let me throw this quote up here. Gregory of Nazianzus. I mean, that's a sweet name. What has not been assumed has not been healed. So what does that say? What Jesus assumes in his nature, becoming fully human and fully divine, he heals the brokenness of humanity. All the things that you struggle with, all the addictions and failures and weaknesses and sins, all the destruction of our lives, all of what it means just to be human, right? Who are failures and weak, broken people. When Jesus becomes a man, a full human, he takes on those realities. And all of those realities that deserve the punishment and wrath of God forever, he then, as a son of God, because he is the eternal son of God who can absorb the full wrath of God for those things, takes our place and suffers for all the failures and weaknesses and sins of our lives because he's both the divine son of God and the great king of the world who knows not only the law of God perfectly, but the full extent of human depravity, right? All that we are needs to be healed. And Jesus does that by being both son of God and the son of man as he walks towards the cross. Because you see here in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day that anyone dared to ask him any more questions. But they did use their voices at another time. They did use their voices to cry out against him and accuse him and condemn him. And that is where he would show the true extent of the love of God. That he died for people who would use our words to reject God, that we use our bodies to reject God, that we use our minds to offend God. And he took our place so that we could be healed in his good authority. Right, you remove this reality of Jesus being son of God and son of man, he becomes a political figure, he becomes a moral example, becomes a religious guru. Jesus is more than that. He is God in the flesh, dwelling among us to give clarity to our lives. This is how we can look to Jesus and love him as our true authority that we can trust. Let's pray. Father, as we look to Jesus, I, this marvelous, amazing, incredible picture of who he is, I pray that you would help us to treasure him and love him. Father, Work in us by your spirit that we would trust him for who he is and enjoy his good authority. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.